Okay, if you've got your Bible, we're in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If you look at your worship guide, it says that uh, we're not in Ephesians chapter 5, and it also says that Brent Corbin is preaching, but Brent called me uh, last night uh, upset that his plane, his flight, uh, Sarah, his wife's grandmother, passed away, and he went to, to a funeral, and in his attempt to get back to preach to us, he called me last night and said, Blake, I'm so sorry that the plane is out for mechanical failure and the flight's been canceled. So, um, Brent uh, expresses his apologies and you're stuck with me. So, last week, let me set up where we were last week. Last week, what we said was just like a new subdivision going up. Just like you getting your house ready. So, more energy, more effort as it were, goes into building the foundation of your Christian life. A lot of stuff happens way before you begin to live a morally clean and pure life. It's all based upon the stability of the foundation that Christ has set for us. And so with that in mind, listen to Andy as he reads from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The word of the Lord. One of, the, uh, one of the coolest discoveries that, that we've made is um, magnets, the power of magnetism. You know, kids, you know that at school when the teacher gives you a magnet, right, how many poles are there on a magnet? There are two poles, right? There's a positive and a negative pole. And if you take a magnet and you try to put the negative against the negative, what happens? It just there's a force that pushes the magnets away from each other. But if you flip it and you put a positive with a negative, they click, they stick, they, they come together. And you do know, right, that if you take a wire and you coil a wire around a magnet and you, you turn that magnet and you connect that wire you know, to a circuit, then that wire becomes electrified. And that's how you get energy. So the power of magnets are what allows us to have lights on at night. It's an incredibly, incredibly simple discovery, but the implications of it are huge. And I, I want you this morning to think about magnets, and I want you to think about the positive poles and the negative poles, because last week we talked about the positive aspects of 
our growth in Christ, our, the positive aspects of the gospel. And they were wonderful, and they were sweet, and they were beautiful. Things like, you are a child of God. Therefore, do you know that when the Father looks at you, do you know what he sees? He sees only sweetness and beauty. Only beauty and sweetness. When, when you look at you, you don't see that. But when God looks at you, when the Father looks at you, he sees you as beautiful and precious. And more than that, he enjoys you. Like, some of you don't even enjoy yourself, but God enjoys you. Isn't that an amazing thought? He doesn't just tolerate you, but your Heavenly Father enjoys you. He enjoys being with you because when he looks at you, he sees the beauty, the sweetness of his son. That's the positive aspects of what Paul talked about last week in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Now, when you get to verses 3 to 6, you see something totally different. You see the negative aspects. But let me, let me stay on the positive for just a moment to summarize what we said last week. If I can go put it in a nutshell, I would say it this way. That Jesus Christ fulfilled all the obligations to satisfy God. Now, you're hard to satisfy. I mean, I'm hard to satisfy, right? I mean, we're picky, but this is God we're talking about. I mean, this is the one whose eyes can't even behold what is impure. This is the one who can't even stand to be with sin. This is the one who wants nothing to do with anything that's impure or unjust. He is perfect justice, perfect holiness, perfect purity. He defi- everything that has purity emerges from God who himself is pure. And yet, that very God has been satisfied by the work of Jesus Christ for us so that when the Father sees you, he sees nothing but beauty and sweetness. Sweetness and beauty. Isn't that amazing? That's like sugar to our souls, friends. That's the beauty of the positive aspects of the gospel. And last week, at the very end of verse 2, you can lower your eyes to your text and you can see it. It said that he is a sweet, Jesus is a sweet fragrance. He is a fragrant offering offered up to Christ. I mean, offered up to the Lord. And we read about it, and we sang about it just earlier. Jesus is a sweet offering. Do you know what that means? It means that in the Old Testament, back in Leviticus, whenever the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for the people, you know, he would have two things in his hands. Right? He'd have a rope around his leg in case he got zapped. They'd pull him out. But he would have in his hand a bucket of the coals from the altar of sacrifice, of blood. He'd have a bucket of those coals. And then he would have in his hands ashes from the table, I mean, uh, incense from the table of incense. And he would take the incense in this bucket of cold, I mean, of, uh, of bloody, hot ash and coal. And he would come to the doorway of the Holy of Holies. And he would sprinkle that incense on that bucket. And it would make a sweet perfume, a sweet fragrance before the Lord. And it would fill the Holy of Holies with smoke. And that high priest would walk into the holiest of holy places in God's temple, filled with the smoke and the aroma of a sweet-smelling sacrifice. And Jesus in the New Testament comes, 
and he represents the one who stands between us and the perfect God. Except Jesus doesn't come to find a bull to put on that altar. He himself becomes that sweet-smelling sacrifice as he lays himself on the altar and gives himself up for you. Does that make sense? And he fulfills every obligation to satisfy God. That's an amazing thought. And some of you, you know, you're hurrying in from, uh, you know, from the house this morning. You're thinking about what time the Cowboys play. I mean, who cares? This is why you should care. Because God thinks more about you than you think about yourself. That's the good news of the positive aspects of the gospel. Like, God thinks you're terrific. Most of you don't. You, you're, like, you're, you're, you're shrouded in either self-importance or self-hatred. But God, he, he delights in you. Because you are a sweet-smelling sweet perfume to him. And that was, um, that was last week. Total acceptance. Total inheritance. That's bigger than you could dream in Christ. Complete protection. All of that you have in Christ. And then, as you heard Andy just read, you get to verse 3, and there's a totally different tone. But. And then Paul lists out all the prohibitions. You don't just get the positive aspects of the magnet, but you also get the negative aspects of the magnet. These are what you should therefore do and not do. And so I'm going to spend some time this morning just thinking about the positive aspect of, of salvation for us. Because we tend to either come from traditions or churches or backgrounds or ideologies that are all positive or all negative, but the gospel brings them both together. And when that happens, you've got something magnetic and beautiful and powerful. It is the gospel. But you have to have both, and I'll show you why. So, let's look at what he says in verse 3. He starts out and he says, but. It's a contrast, Allah in Greek. It transitions us from this positive aspect of the gospel to this negative aspect of the gospel, these prohibitions. And you see a very, very different tone. It's totally different. He turns the dime on us so quickly. And this happens again and again and again in Scripture. Because of what Jesus has done for us, because of his beauty and his fame and his work, therefore this is what you should do. You don't do these things in order to get God to like you. He loves you. And so therefore, you should have fruit that manifests the beauty of the seed. Many of us, many of us um, um, come from churches that were all negative and really no positive. What I mean by that? We loved, we loved the portion of Scripture that was all law and duty. You know, keep the Ten Commandments. You know, don't lie, cheat, or steal, or date girls. You know, oh, that doesn't rhyme, whatever. Don't, whatever. Something about chewing and girls who do it. Yeah, you know what I mean. So, like, you keep, lie. Okay, I, I can't remember it. That was embarrassing. I even tried. But you know what I mean. You want to stay, you want to stay, right, within the, now you're all thinking about what it is. Forget it. Stay with me. 
And so you come, and basically what you hear at church is you got to do this, do this, do this. And you come to hear the good news of the gospel. You sing some songs. Some of them you know. Some of them are weird. You don't really understand what vouchsafe and nigh mean. And then you leave, and you leave with like this crushing burden. That's not good news because you leave with this sense of now I've got more things I've got to do to get God to love me. That's like all the negative and, and none of the positive. But listen, all of us, no matter where we come from or who we are, all of us have this little voice inside of our head. And some of us, this voice is very, very loud. And it's very, very raw. And it's very crisp and clear. And it says things to you like, you know what? Um, you deserve to be kicked. I mean, maybe something uh, rekindles it and inflames it, and you begin to hear it more, and it gets louder. Maybe an experience when you were much younger, you know, comes back. You didn't really know the effects of it, but now you've experienced something, and this little voice, your conscience, whether you have it as a Christian or you're not a Christian here, you've got this little voice, here, and it says, you know what? You really deserve to be kicked. You really don't deserve God's love. Like, you really, you really don't. Do you know what you've done? And the truth of that voice is that it's very, very, very deep in our hearts. It's very deep. But when it speaks to us, we don't know what to do with that. And so many Christians who grow up in environments that are all negative and not positive, they tend to just sulk and grow more and more self-hating. And so, as Christians, right, it's right, there, it's right there in the Bible, by the way. I mean, there is the good use of the conscience. And it's appropriate for us to feel that voice, raise its voice and say, you know what, listen, that was out of bounds. That was not pleasing to God. And that is in Scripture. And that is a beautiful thing. That is one aspect of the gospel. You cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater. But here's the difference. Instead of when that voice raises its voice to you and says, look, you're not that good. You're not worthy. You have to remember that you say to that voice, you know what? That's right. But I've worn a crown of thorns. And I have been run through with a spear. And Jesus Christ was the one who took all of my sins, all of the ones I didn't even know about, and he bore them on the cross for me. So little voice, be at peace, because I am a beloved son of God, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you know what, conscience? You're right. Well may my accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, but Jehovah knoweth none. And if you grow up in an environment that's all negative and no positive, you tend to get the law, but you actually never hear about the positive aspects of the gospel. Luther and the reformers, I mentioned this last week, said that scripture is divided into two parts. And when you're a young child in Sunday school, you learn that scripture, of course, is divided into two parts. It's divided into the Old Testament and the New, but that's not actually what Luther said. Luther said that the Bible is rightly divided between law and and gospel. And I want you to hear what he says about it. Luther says, the difference between law and gospel is the height of knowledge in Christendom. And it's the best thing you can learn, in other words. Every person and all persons who assume 
or glory in the name of Christian should be able to state this difference. If this ability is lacking, one cannot tell a Christian from a heathen or a Jew. Of such supreme importance is this differentiation. This is why St. Paul so strongly insists on a clean-cut and proper delineation between these two doctrines of law and of gospel, of what Scripture commands you to do and the proclamation of the good news of what Christ has done. And if you do not know how those two go together, you'll be frustrated because you will be flying between the poles, as it were. Luther wasn't alone. Calvin's successor in Geneva, Theodore Beza, this is for all you history buffs, he said this, we divide this word into two principal parts or kinds. The one is called the law and the other the gospel. For all the rest can be gathered under one or the other of these two headings. Ignorance of this distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which corrupted and still corrupt Christianity. Do you hear what he's saying? That in other words, when you read Ephesians 5, 3 through 6, if you don't understand that it rests upon the foundation of Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, and really Ephesians 4, 21, 22, 23, then you will become a beautiful moral person on the outside, but you will be an inch deep. Your spirituality will be extremely shallow because you won't recognize what Christ has done for you to sink his roots of security and love and affection upon you. That's what stabilizes you. Charles Spurgeon said, there is no point on which men make greater mistakes than on the relation which exists between law and gospel. The law is where the Bible commands you to do certain things, the prohibitions, the commands of Scripture, and the gospel is the proclamation of what Jesus has done for you. Of course, all of the Bible is gospel, right? But we're talking here about the nature of your growth in the Christian life, the positive aspects about what Jesus has done, and the negative aspects which means the things that you should avoid or you should do in light of being a beloved child of God. Are you with me so far? Many of us grew up in worlds that were all negative and never positive. And for some of us, that means that we have this incredibly sensitive conscience and we're motivated by guilt very, very easily. It's kind of like, you know, like the deep horizon, the, the BP oil spill, right? There's an oil leak somewhere deep beneath the surface. You don't really know where it is. You just see pollution everywhere. The gospel shows you where it is. And it says the problem is not your performance. It's your heart. And that's what Christ came to heal and to renew and to restore. Romans 8, 4, um, there's a passage where Paul says that in order that the righteous requirement, we're sanctified, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, it's a present progressive, might be being fulfilled in us now. And as you begin to embrace these negative aspects, if you will, and I, when I say negative, I just mean the don'ts. I don't mean like bad, right? 
the negative aspects, you recognize that you are being made more and more into the image of Christ, slowly, bit by bit, but assuredly. And you're slowly becoming conformed. You're imitating who God himself is. Those are the beautiful things about the commands of Scripture that always arise out of what Jesus has first done. To use other language, we call this the indicative imperative relationship in Scripture. What Jesus has done, what therefore you should do in light of what Jesus has done for you. Others of us grew up in environments where um, it was all positive and no negative. Right? You had positive poles. You're tr- constantly trying to put them together. And things just aren't working in the Christian life. Those of you who grew up in the positive world grew up in the places where they said, you know what? You are a beloved child of God. You are. And you just need to believe that and move out in your identity in Jesus and go. Don't worry about what you shouldn't do. And they're very permissive churches. Just believe it to achieve it. And in Tulsa, we get that a lot around here, don't we? You know, it's Jordan River Christianity, right? It's like ankle deep or Arkansas River Christianity. It's, it's like just believe it to achieve it. You know, it doesn't really matter how you live. You're safe. Listen, that little voice inside your head also will not let you get away with that. You try to tell that conscience, hey, you know what? I'm really a pretty good person. You know, I really am beloved by, I really, I do deserve God's love and favor. Listen, it will make minced meat out of you. Your conscience will make duck soup out of you. Because it will say to you, oh yeah? What about June 6, 1987? How righteous were you then? And you'll die. You'll die. And you, this has happened in your life before. If you just talk about the positive aspects of our growth with Christ without the negative, then you will tend, you will tend to fall into a kind of easy believism that has no concrete action steps of what you ought to do in light of what Jesus has done for you. And your conscience will make mincemeat out of you. And you have to be able to say, yes, I do love the Lord God. I can obey what Scripture says in Christ because he is the one that has given me the ability to do it. I can't do it in and of myself, but he opens up for me a new category of choosing that says, yes, I can actually honor my wife. I can love her well. Like, guys, those of you who are trapped in pornography, this happens all the time for you. Women, you're trapped in addictions. It happens all the time. It's like, you know, I'm a child of God. This is just part of my sanctification process. There's a point at which you have to say, no. Just say no, Nancy Reagan. I've got to be able to just say no. You can get in all the accountability groups you want to. You can go to CR every night of the week in Tulsa and Owasso. But there's a point in front of that computer when you want to click that button and you've got to say no. You have to remind yourself of that. And the gospel gives you the ability to do that. Whether you grew up in in an all-negative environment or whether you grew up in an all-positive environment, 
most of us, when we come to see the gospel for the first time, this is what happens to us. We tend to run to the other extreme, which is also equally as sinful. So if you grew up you know, in a really permissive, you know, like lackadaisical, you know, church or environment that says, yeah, you can do what you want. It doesn't really matter how you live. Grace, you know, grace, you know, maybe sin that grace may abound. Of course, that's not what he says right after that, by the way. And so we tend to swing the pendulum the other way. And so we tend to be in churches that are incredibly strict. We tend to gravitate toward the cults. That's why when you look at cults on TV, on CNN, and you see these people, you're like, how in the world could they be? Most of them grew up in a very permissive environment. And when they found somebody, they're just longing for authority. And when they found somebody that was authoritative, man, they run to it like a mouse after cheese. And for most of us, though, that's not our situation. Most of us came came from an environment that was very, very strict and moralistic. Because in the, oh, in the South, and certainly in Owasso, if you don't belong to a church, well, you can kiss your business prospects goodbye. And so there's this incredible social power to get involved in the church, but nobody knows why they go. And so, therefore, when you really hear the gospel being preached, and it's about what Jesus does for you, not what you do to make God like you more, that he really loves you, then you then you tend to run to the other extreme and, you know, you pick up new habits because you can. And you just begin to live into those and say, you know what? Grace abounds. And you forget that right after the proclamation of the positive aspects of the gospel, you see the prohibitions as well. And so, friends, I just bring that point up and I try to reiterate it a thousand ways because it's so important that as we enter in to what he actually says in verse 3 to 6, right? I mean, the whole sermon to this point has been an exposition of the word but, right? But as you enter in to verses 3 to 6, you're prepared to know why those prohibitions exist. Because when you have both the positive and the aspect, uh, negative aspects of our sanctification, things begin to click. It becomes magnetic. And it becomes not just a new walk, but a new power in your life. Things that you once thought you could never do, now you can because of Christ's work in you. So, um, let me just say one more thing, and then we're going to dive into just one of the things he mentions in verse 3 before we close. When, when you're able, when you're able to see both the positive and the negative aspects of your Christian walk, the things that you you know, what Christ has done for you, and therefore the things you should avoid and you should do. When you're able to see that, it actually frees you up to be more honest about your heart. Because before, when you only, when you only saw the positive, and your conscience says, you know, you're a sinner, you're broken, you're really broken, you would tend to say to it, no, you're just exaggerating. Like, I'm not that, I'm not that bad. Like, I'm really a pretty good person. And you tend to exaggerate your goodness. And so, the gospel frees you up to be honest, to say, you know what? I am a sinner, and I am broken by sin, but Christ is my advocate, and he fights for me, and he fought for me on the cross, and I am freed up now to love and serve the world as one who has been brought in to God's covenant community. The same thing happens on the other side. If you grew up in an environment that was all negative, you tend to, you know, when you begin to think of yourself, yeah, I am a beloved child, your conscience screws the bolt sentences, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're really not that good. 
And you have to tell it, you know what, I am because I'm a beloved child of God and he loves me. Do you see the importance? I know this is a little detailed. It's off the cuff, right? Do you see the importance of recognizing both extremes in the Christian life? The importance of bringing both the negative and the positive aspects together in order for there to be power in the Christian life, in order for us to be the hands and feet of the new humanity called to Owasso. You cannot ignore verses 3 to 6. And when you look at verses 3 to 6 very quickly, it gives you a whole list of things that we're supposed to do, but really, if you're careful about it, you just see there's three. There's three categories. There's sexual immorality and impurity. There's covetousness. And then there are three words that speak to our speech. Um, filthiness, foolish talk, and coarse joking. And what's amazing to me about verses 3 to 6 is the integrity of the Bible's view of our behavior, of the biblical ethic. The Bible does not separate out sins as ones or more or less righteous in God's sight. They're all horribly heinous. So Paul sticks sexual immorality right next to covetousness. Those of you who spend money on yourself to, nur to nurse your wounds, and those of you who give your bodies to other people to nurse your wounds, they're both sinful. Don't you see that? The book of Amos says that. The book of Amos, you know, they go after both the sexual immoral and the greedy. And it says, look, you sell the poor for a pair of shoes. You grind down the poor so that you can make a profit. And you go into harlots, all in the same verse in Amos. They're both the same in the Lord's eyes. The integrity of the Bible says that if the gospel has come in and has gripped you, it doesn't just have some grip on one part of your life. It takes all of you. And every bit of your life becomes subservient to the good news of Jesus for you. And conservatives, if you will, tend, tend, tend to say, you know what? We should not legislate how my money is spent, but we should definitely legislate how my body is used. And liberals, on the other hand, tend to say, no, you shouldn't legislate how my body is used. It's my body, but you should legislate the way we spend our money. Isn't it interesting? Like, both, whatever your political ideology is, both tend to handpick certain aspects of what the prophets call sin, what the prophets call very important both your sexual integrity and identity before the Lord and also the way you use money. The Bible is not stuck into a political party. It is totally off the scale. It's totally different. And when you begin to get that, you begin to recognize the joy of letting the gospel into aspects of your life that previously were off limits. Now, let me, um, for the sake of time, I'm going to close, but let me just mention the very last of these. Coarse joking, foolish talk. I'm just going to give you a little seed and then we'll talk more about it next week. When the Bible says coarse joking, like, oh brother, seriously? Like we can't laugh? No. What, what Paul is actually saying is that humor, humor isn't just necessary in a Christian life, it's actually inevitable. 
because you're going to joke, you're going to have a sense of humor that is fresh and real and new that you did not have before your believer. Why? Because there were certain things in your life that were sacred cows. And the jokes that attacked those sacred cows in your life, your body image, how much money you make, your kids, you became incredibly defensive. And it wasn't very funny. But in the gospel, you actually become more humorous. You become like a hobbit in the Lord of the Rings. You begin to recognize that there are no sacred cows except for the Lord himself. And so therefore, you're able to, re- to, to laugh at yourself. You don't take yourself quite so seriously. And it's incredibly freeing. And so in some ways, and I'll talk about this next week, as a Christian, your joking becomes more authentic and more human because it's not at somebody else's expense. And you can laugh at yourself in ways you could not laugh at yourself before. The positive and the negative poles of the Christian life help you become magnetic. They help you recognize that, yes, you're a beloved child of God. And they also help you recognize that, therefore, there are things that God is calling you to be and to do morally in light of what he's called it is the gospel and it is the law and we need to be a church that understands those things beautifully talks about them the kind of language that we share together reminds each other that there is a time for a healthy rebuke and there is a time for a healthy encouragement because in the gospel it's all rebuke and it's all encouragement it is because jesus christ himself was the one sacrifice so that you and i might be able to not take ourselves quite so seriously and take the gospel seriously in every aspect of our life. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that um, the book of Ephesians is counsel for the heart. Lord, thank you that you have equipped us through the indwelling presence of your spirit to see ourselves as we are in your eyes, a beloved son, a beloved daughter. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have grown up in churches that were all negative without the positive, Lord, that you will free us, that our chains will fall off, and that we will see how beautiful you are. And we will see how beautiful that you've made us so that when you look at us, it's all beauty, all sweetness, all sweetness, all beauty. And Father, those of us who grew up in churches that were very permissive, that were all positive, and there were no prohibitions, there was no reading of the law, Lord, I pray that you'll remind us who we should be in light of our calling as your sons and daughters. And Lord, free us up to give us an incredible sense of humor because we don't hold those idols of our wealth or our appearance as tightly as we once did, and we can laugh at ourselves because we know that there is one who thought us valuable and worthy, and he came for us to rescue us from our greatest enemies of sin and death. Lord, help us to see the beauty of the gospel and the glory of the good news of your great name. We pray in Jesus' name.